My name is Matt, and I serve as one of the pastors here. Well, this morning we are wrapping up our Ever After series, Life Beyond the Grave. And in this brief series, we've wanted to explore the thought, Life Beyond the Grave. Uh, Benjamin Franklin was famously quoted in a letter in 1789 to have said, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes, right? And we know that to be true. April 15th, uh, every year our taxes are due, and, and most likely everyone hearing the sound of my voice right now will at some point die. We know these things to be certain. And yet taxes, especially these days, they're just way too controversial and depressing to talk about. So we decided to lean into the much easier topic of death and just dive into that. And I don't know about you, but, but I find that throughout life you can go through sort of different uh, variations, variety of seasons when it comes to death. Times that it can confront you just, just head on right in your face. And other times where it's a, a little bit more distant. Maybe in these distant moments you, you hear about a death. Maybe a death of a celebrity. Something you see on, on Twitter. Uh, maybe you are watching the news and you, you hear a story about a tragic death. Maybe it's a, a family of a family friend that, that you hear the story. And even in its distance, it still has this way that it just sort of grips you and, and it hits with just an ache and a pain and just sort of this disgruntled like, oh, I just hate it. There's a heaviness to it. There's something about it that this just feels unjust and wrong and it's not right. And, and the reality of that is that's the, the cravings of our soul pointing back to our God-given design and that we weren't built or created to die. Death is, an, is, is a part of our world here and, and a part of our sinful nature that came in and broke apart the perfect plan that God was putting into place. And so even in distance, we may pause and we may pray for the families affected and we may, may feel those, those feelings. And sometimes death comes, like I said, a little bit more face-to-face. -face. I know for us and our family, the past myths, the fa excuse me, the past six months or so, we've had more of that in-our-face interaction with death. Uh, back in the summer, my, my grandmother of 96 years uh, passed away. In, in the fall, one of Erica's aunts died after a long battle with cancer. Just about a month ago, uh, five days before his 66th birthday, my uncle passed away. In fact, I got that phone call as I was walking off this stage just a few Sundays ago. Two weeks ago, one of Erica's cousins was killed in a car accident. And so it's just been this season where funerals and memorial services and conversations and questions and just the processing of death and the afterlife has been very close and in our face. And in our home, we have uh, three kids who are ages 10 and under. And so in the midst of this, there's certainly been a lot of conversations and, and questions that we've been processing. And it's just been so sweet to hear some of the thoughts and prayers that have come from my kids during this season. And, and death is just, it just does that. It's something that just brings something out of us. It just brings this perspective and, and this sort of focus. And we can often walk through our days ignoring 
the inevitability of death, and we can just kind of process through life like we're invincible and nothing can stop us. And yet when we're confronted by death, we're reminded that life is so short. It's just so sweet and so precious, and it causes us to just unearth some questions as, as we process the loss of loved ones. We, we begin to ask, how am I doing? How am I living? How is my life adding up and, and counting and making a difference? And, and we ask these questions of what's next? Life beyond the grave. And so Kondo launched us last week and did just a brilliant job as, as he processed through uh, this story in Luke chapter 16. And I actually want to return to the story this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it and we'll, we'll look together at uh, this story in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. And we want to look back at this story because it is, it's really one of just the more uh, vivid stories and examples of an interaction with the afterlife. And I think in it, there are some things that we can draw out about that experience. In fact, a number of questions were raised from some of you all coming out of last week, and we want to try to take some time to answer some of those things. And so we look to God's Word because we trust it to be true and to give us the perspective that we have not experienced in our own personal lives. So the, the scripture will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please stop by the connection corner on the way out. We'd love for you to have one of these as our gift to you. So let's get started. Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So as we read this, this story, a, a number of questions have come up. One of the questions being, is this, is this story real? Is this a real story? I mean, Jesus taught in a lot of parables. He, he used a lot of metaphors in his teaching. So is this story real or is this story a metaphor? Well, a few things on that. Unlike parables found throughout Jesus' teaching, Nowhere in this passage does it designate or announce it as a parable. 
Another thing worth noting is the fact that Jesus names Lazarus. He never names anyone else in his parable story. They're just fictional characters. And yet with Lazarus, there seems to be a very specific focus and detail about his life and about the life of the rich man. Finally, if it were intended to be a parable, this this story breaks the rules and the primary structure found in parables. A parable teaches spiritual truths while using an earthly metaphor, and yet this story seems to be an account with specific detail lacking in metaphor. So we are processing through this story as if it's a real account of real people. And as we look through it, a a, a real interaction with the afterlife. This real connection with heaven and Hades. And so there's a lot of questions that have come up from it of, of where do we go after we die? What happens to us? How aware are we? Uh, Can we recognize each other? Can we see what's happening on earth? And so we want to draw out of this story just just some things that that we see that we feel like we can begin to answer a few of these questions. And what I want to start with is take you back to a point that Kondo made last week as he processed through the story talking about two doors. Last week we saw that death is a portal. Death leads us to this place of two doors. One leads to Hades and the other towards heaven. Every single person who dies goes to one of these two places. And so we want to talk about what can be gathered about these two places from this passage. So first we want to talk about our state. What can we learn about our state? Even though it's not explicit in this passage, We know from other places in the Bible that when we die, our souls leave our bodies and go to one of two destinations. Kondo talked about this last week, death being this disconnection of our body and our spirit. We see this in the story. It starts off with Lazarus who's laid outside the gate of this man's home in physical form, just hoping and waiting for some crumbs from his table, some leftovers to care for him. We see the rich man dressed in these uh, fine garments and linens and, and having everything he needs in their physical form. And yet, as time catches up to them, as the inevitable catches up to them, their earth bodies are laid to rest and their souls depart. And there's no doubt that Lazarus and the rich man, where we find them, are in their soul state in this story once they die. This means that the immaterial beings with no material bodies. When we die, we shed our bodies and all that remains are our spirits or our our souls, the immaterial part of us, the truest part of us that God breathed into us in our beginning. However, as we'll see in a second, we, we may not have a physical body, but our souls seem to have some dimension and shape, almost like an immaterial physicality. Next, what can we learn in, in this story about our awareness? About our awareness. As we process this passage, it's interesting that souls seem to have a heightened sense of awareness. Hades and heaven were far away. It says in verse 23, he looked up and saw Abraham far away from each other. And yet the rich man was able to see at this distance. He's able to see through this chasm. And who knew that our earthly eyes were holding us back? Because this man seems to have some sort of transcendent vision. So even though we are souls, we can apparently see. 
Besides that, based on, on this story and, and when we think it would have taken place in the context of Jesus, this rich man would not have known or wouldn't have met Abraham. He would have known of Abraham. He wouldn't have met Abraham. But yet the rich man recognizes Abraham as he sees into heaven. He recognizes Abraham, even though most likely they never met. So it would appear after death that we will be able to recognize and identify people we may not have otherwise known. Our perception seems to be upgraded. It's as if I, when I get to heaven, I won't need anyone to introduce me to the Apostle Paul or, or to your grandma because there's just this perception and this awareness that has been upgraded. Obviously, the rich man and Abraham are able to have a conversation from a great distance. And I'm assuming this is not a, a FaceTime situation, but somehow communication is enhanced. They can speak and they can hear from a ways away. But the rich man wants someone to go to his family. See, he makes a distinction between here and there in a way that seems that there is no access or connection to what's happening on earth. He has this certain feeling and this certain longing towards his family, towards his five brothers, and yet there's no indication that he can see them or that he can interact with them. Leading us to believe that while there's this connection in the spiritual world, there's just something closed off about what's happening between the spiritual world for these souls on earth. Whatever death is in our soul state, it seems to enhance our abilities and our awareness. We, we can somehow see without physical eyes. We can somehow speak without a physical mouth. We can somehow feel without skin. Death is clearly a sensory upgrade. And for those of us who have lost loved ones who have placed their faith in Jesus and, and maybe they went through just some really hard trials in this life, some, some physical disabilities, a, a painful death experience, how beautiful and amazing it is to think about what that means for them in this new state. Next, I want to talk about what we can learn about our experience. It would appear that our enhanced senses affect our joy and our pain. It would appear that the experience of joy is greater than anything we could possibly fathom here. Sin is removed for those who know Jesus. Lazarus is said to be fully comforted, wrapped in delight. Verse 25, but, he, but now he is comforted here. But on the other side, the experience of pain is also enhanced. The rich man speaks of being in this inescapable agony. He is experiencing pain that he cannot get any relief from. He is begging for a drop of water, just insinuating that just a mere drop of water would bring some form of relief. We also see that he's clearly feeling the weight of regret, wishing that he had lived differently while here on earth. And he is painfully aware that his family is headed for the same inescapable pain. And obviously it's adding pain onto pain. And he wants someone to come back to warn his family. Whatever death is for the believer, it brings us deeply in touch with joy. And for those who do not trust in Jesus, it brings about a deep pain and regret. And finally, using a few other passages, I want to talk about our 
duration. Because I think this is an important thing for us to note about this story that, that we see through other passages. Popular to contrary belief, heaven and Hades are temporary places. And the soul state is a temporary state. Now, now before you tune me out or throw me out of here, just follow me for a minute. I'm going to read from here, but you can turn to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, if you'd like. We're going to read a few passages from there. And Revelation was written by uh, the Apostle John. And basically what we're looking at is John was given this opportunity by the Lord, a a vision, an experience, where, where he's able to look and see and experience heaven and sort of what we would call the end times and just process through and sort of report back, here's what I see. And I think it brings some context to us as we process through our story here in Luke. So we'll start in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. This is John talking about what he is seeing. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. So what he's talking about is he's seeing people in this soul state, specifically people who have been persecuted for the sake of the gospel, people who have given up their lives for the sake of the gospel. He's seeing these people, and these people, they call out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just like them. Quickly, looking back at the, this soul state, again, we, we see they're given robes to wear. And, and how do souls wear robes? And I, I think this is where, again, this points to some sort of immaterial shape to us. But the bigger thing I want to see here is, is just the longing. These souls are in the presence of God. And the pressing question they have is, how long? How long? They're experiencing just unbelievable, incredible bliss. And yet they know there is unfinished business. They know this state and this place they're in is not the final chapter. There's still judgment to come. There's still justice to be carried out. And God actually tells them, just wait a little bit. We're not there yet. And just a quick aside, I know in a lot of the heaven and hell discussion and the end times discussion, there can be so much said about God and his character and who is this God that would just end everything and, and, and be condemning and pressing down. And I see this passage as pointing towards God's character and his patience and his love and his grace because what's at work here is the work of redemption the work of the gospel on earth here and now and he's patiently waiting before the final horn sounds because he wants the most people possible to know him. And so he's saying, wait, 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 wait. Not yet. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then, John speaking again, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. If the present heaven will pass away, it cannot be the place where we spend forever. Jumping back to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. On that day, on that final day of judgment, God will throw death and Hades into the lake of fire, into hell. So Hades cannot be the final destination. It's a temporary place. In church, sadly, whatever Hades is, it does not compare to this second death. It does not compare to what hell will be like. There will be utter darkness, complete separation, no access to God and his people like we see in this story in, in Luke. It'll be completely cut off, separation forever. Second Corinthians 5, verse 4. For while we are in this tent... We groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. For while we are in this tent, this physical body, that this body that we are given to walk this earth, while we are in this tent, we, are, we groan and we are burdened. That that's what happens when we're confronted with death and we're confronted with the sin and the brokenness of the world. Inside of this, 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 this groaning, this burden of like, oh, this just isn't the way it's supposed to be. I hate this. This isn't right. It's not fair. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And what we're wishing for and what we're longing for is our heavenly dwelling, our new heavenly body. In this line, I love this line, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
If we've trusted in Jesus, our final state will be our souls clothed in new, majorly upgraded tents, new heavenly bodies. They cannot die. They don't get sick. There's no regret. There's no pain. And as a church, we exist to invite everyone everywhere to life in Christ. And it's our desire to see the 50,000 people of our county who claim no relationship with Jesus. And we, our desire to see the people around the globe who claim no relationship with Jesus. We long to see them in this place and in this state, lives committed to Jesus who will one day experience healing and joy and restoration that we cannot even begin to imagine. I realize this is a lot to process. I'm not going to lie, I may have asked Jesus for just a little bit of snow this morning. Like, just, you know. There's some really heavy things to wade through when it comes to trying to get our finite perspective to fully understand an infinite God and His eternal plans. And yet our truest self, our souls were built for eternity and everyone ends up somewhere. A few thoughts from me, and then I want to wrap up with one more look at our original story. Growing up, this stuff used to just absolutely terrify me. And not just hell. The concept of eternity. Just this idea of never ending. Like, what? And I remember specifically, vividly, these moments as a kid and as as a teenager and even as a young adult where I'd start to just process and try to think through and get my mind around this idea and this concept of eternity and the fear of the unknown would take root and it just freaked me out. And then there's the side of it of growing up in a Christian home and growing up in the church and hearing a lot of opinions and thoughts about heaven and what it's going to be like and what's happening and beginning to form this vision of just a billion people sitting around in white fluffy clouds just singing terrible hymns over and over and over again. Like this just celestial version of Groundhog's Day. It's like, (laughs) what? But the more I've gotten to know Jesus and understand God and his character and the more I've experienced the pain and the brokenness of this world and the more I see the beauty and the love and the creativity of God break through, the more my faith and trust in him grows and expands and gets excited about what he's preparing with this new heaven and this new earth. I resonate with that passage in Corinthians longing for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, think about the deepest moments of joy you've experienced in this life and marinate on the idea that it pales in comparison of what's to come. And think about the gut-wrenching, heartbreaking hurts and pains that you've experienced And take hope in knowing that those moments will be no more. The pain will end forever. The other element for me personally is that again, even with these scriptures, there's still a lot that we don't know about the afterlife. 
life. And if you're a control freak or maybe you're just a really black and white person and you need those definitive just details and a picture of what's to come, trying to gain clarity on some of this can just be a little bit maddening. I would say something that's helped me is realizing that, well, I don't have all the answers for heaven and hell. And what exactly those places will be like on the other side. I have experienced traces of heaven and hell here on this earth. And you have too. And when we can shift our perspective to some of that and what we can do about that, I believe it helps us to connect with God's heart for eternity in a really special way. You've seen and experienced different versions of hell. Bad and broken relationships addictions, suffering, pain, extreme poverty, lack of basic human needs. Think about people with no clean drinking water. Think about the 140 million orphans on this planet who do not have families of their own. Think about people walking through this life without hope. That's hell on earth. And you've also experienced joy and forgiveness and grace and redemption, maybe a relationship that was mended, a deep wound that was healed. You've experienced transformative hope, a life-altering perspective, a friendship that is closer than a brother, someone stepping in and providing for a need. Some of you have been on mission trips where you've had the opportunity to be a part of just providing really basic medical care for people in need. You've fed the hungry, you've given water to the thirsty. Some of you spend your days working in classrooms all day where you're bringing love and joy to the neglected and the vulnerable. Some of you work to help break chains of addictions. Some of you have opened your homes. Some of you have emptied out the resources and poured out the resources of your bank account on behalf of others. You've sacrificed your own personal gain and your time and your energy to stand in the gap for someone else. And that heaven on earth. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he leads them through what we know as the Lord's prayer. They say, Jesus, how to pray? How do we pray? And he, he says, pray this way. And he, he gives them the Lord's prayer. And I love this verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. This is Jesus praying, talking to his father. Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And why I love this and that Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way. He's teaching them to pray and live as if the things of heaven can be experienced here on this earth now. And while we may not have all of the answers, we know what hell on earth looks like. And if we're walking around with Christ in us, then we have what it takes to fight back and to bring a little bit of heaven We can let our minds get wrapped around the axle of the complexities of the afterlife, or we can begin to be ushers for heaven. The Bible talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church of Jesus Christ. It's already been written. We know the end of the story, and we have a Savior who has defeated death for good. And we know that in him we share in the inheritance and in his immortality. It's so good to think about and process the afterlife. In fact, it's a must so that we can be prepared. Death is inevitable. It is unavoidable. So if that's true, then what's the wisest thing? 
to get ready right now. To get ready right now. Right now is all that you have. It's all that you can control. If you've not trusted Jesus with your life and you've not asked him to forgive you of your sins, do not leave this place without doing that. We'll give you an opportunity in just a moment to connect with someone, to pray with someone, and to take a step of faith. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, for those of us who are walking in faith with him, the goal is not to just sit around with this fire insurance and wait for the eternal party in the sky to break out. In fact, it matters a great deal how we choose to live today, here, and now. And that leads me to my last thought about the rich man and Lazarus, and that's looking at the temporary versus the eternal. The story is such a powerful reminder that pleasure, power, prestige, they're temporary, so temporary, fleeting, they're on loan, so short-lived. The things that we spend so much energy running after are for a moment and then they are gone. And the stuff I enjoy on earth does not guarantee what I'll enjoy beyond the grave. But what I do with the stuff I enjoy on earth is of eternal consequence. How I treat the the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable with my stuff, with my influence, with my privilege is a constant, constant theme in the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about his return to earth for final judgment. And he describes this scene where all nations will be gathered before him. And there will be a separation. People will be divided up to be on the right and on his left. And he'll look over at the people on his right and he will say to them, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the people on the right will will just have this feeling of confusion and looking at each other and respond, Jesus, what are you talking? When did we see you? When did we care for you? When did we feed you? When did we give you something to drink. What are you talking about? And Jesus will respond. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he'll look to the left and he'll run them through the same scenario, but say the opposite. When I was hungry, you did not feed me. You gave me nothing to drink. You you did not invite me and you did not clothe me. You did not care for me. You did nothing for me. And and in their confusion, in their defense, they'll they'll say, Jesus, what are you you talking about? We we never saw you. We we never interacted. What do you mean? And he'll reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. What we see in this story is a rich man who had everything that earth could have to offer him. 
And yet he did nothing to even acknowledge or help or see the poor man who was at his gate. Faith in Jesus matters. Trusting him with the forgiveness of your sin matters. But how we live and seek to care for the world around us matters too. I'm going to invite John and Abby to come out, and they're going to close us with a song here in just a moment. And as they do, I'm going to invite uh, our elders and some of their wives and, and some of our small group leaders, if you would just come forward and stand here at the front of the stage. And what we want to do is just open up a moment during, during the song, after the song, for you to come up and for you to respond. What are you doing to be prepared for death? What are you doing to be prepared for death? Where are you at with Jesus today? Don't leave here without answering that question. Come up and talk to someone. Come up and pray with someone. They are here for you. They want to help you. For those of us who have faith in Jesus, what are you doing with your life, your pursuits, your resources to help fight back hell and introduce someone to a little taste of heaven here and now? Take a moment to process that. I'm going to pray, we'll sing, and then if you'd like to come up and pray with someone, please do. Father, thank you so very much for your love and your gracious patience with us. God, we believe that you are here with us and that you know where each person is at. So Spirit, please open our eyes. Open our hearts. Give us the courage to take a step of faith forward in our journey here today. In Christ's name.